<clears throat> so, tonight I want to talk about happiness. Some of you who are new to this practice may have gotten the impression this week that it's all challenges and all bad news and all difficulty and all suffering. And certainly those are present, but that's not the uh, point. That's not what we are practicing uh, to, uh, that's not where we end up. So there's this, um, there are a lot of beautiful teachings in the Buddhist tradition on happiness. The Buddha himself was known as the happy one, the happy one. And his monks, the people who followed him, uh, were known as happy people. And so what did they know about happiness? Let's look and see. I'm going to talk about four kinds of happiness that are spoken of in the Buddhist tradition. We could, we could sort of call them four grades of happiness from the sort of the most common kind of happiness all the way to the, to the happiness that is known as liberating happiness. So in the Buddhist approach, uh, happiness is not a result of getting what we want or of what happens to us. It is rather the result of how we pay attention, how we attend to our moment-to-moment experience and what kind of intention we bring to that. And that is really what you have been practicing this week, this, this uh, simple but not so easy task of staying attentive to your experience, attentive to the movements of your own mind and heart, the various experiences of the body, and how we can meet those experiences without grasping or resistance. We discover, and many of you, perhaps all of you, have had uh, this experience this week of opening in a way that has brought you moments of great joy and happiness. I know, I always, I like to say I know the retreat is well underway and and working well when I go outside the meditation hall into the courtyard and I see somebody down on all fours, eyeball to eyeball with a lizard. You know, there's a sense of suddenly seeing in a new way, hearing sounds in a new way, feeling the tasting the food, seeing the beauty around you, and really feeling open to it. Many of you have reported this in interviews, really feeling the connection with life all around you. So there's this sense of uh, the attention leading us into a new perception of the world. Mary Oliver Um, we often read poems by Mary Oliver because she knows so much about this, this, about the power of attending to the natural world, in her case. 
and writing about it and showing us what we perhaps are too distracted or busy to notice about what is actually here in the natural world. And what she says about this is there is nothing in this world, if I can pay attention to it long enough, that doesn't cease to foster wonder and love. If there is something, I haven't found it yet. So simply by bringing this open, curious attention, this mindful awareness into our experience, things begin to open up. And of course, slowing down very much helps, as we do here on retreat. You're living at a somewhat slower pace than when you came in here. Remember how hard it was to slow down at the beginning? But now you're settled in this rhythm of life that is much more, you, say, you could say, connected to the pace of the natural world. Here's a poem by Billy Collins. It's called My Hero. Just as the hare is zipping across the finish line, the tortoise has stopped once again by the roadside, this time to stick out his neck and nibble a bit of sweet grass. Unlike the previous time when he was distracted by a bee humming in the heart of a wildflower. My hero. So when we begin to slow down enough to notice what's around us, there is a kind of happiness that comes, a kind of sense of connection with the world, with ourselves. So the Buddha's path of practice very much uh, points to the possibility of a happiness that comes from the way we use our attention, that comes from within ourselves, is not dependent on outer circumstances. In the Dhammapada, the Buddha says, live in joy, in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still. Free from fear and attachment, know the sweet joy of the way. Sweet joy of the way, this way of attending to ourselves and to the world around us brings this simple happiness, but it is so satisfying. So it, it's a little bit of a different idea for us to uh, identify the happiness that's not dependent on outer conditions. But I think it is a teaching that we need in this world. Perhaps the world has always needed it. I know it really came home to me after 9-11, uh, after that event that was so shocking and so uh, frightening. It was frightening to many people. And out of that event, over time, I began to observe uh, 
that fear had taken up residence in the hearts of many people and that it was it 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 appeared that we were being uh almost coaxed to continue feeling afraid for years after the event itself and still today it continues this instilling of uh, a, a, a sort of super vigilant attitude and i don't i think it's i think it's not an attitude that is helpful and that um at a certain point i came to feel i don't want to live with fear it didn't feel from what i was experiencing and be, having been a dharma practitioner for some years it felt this is not a good thing to keep uh in my consciousness keep fear going in subtle and not so subtle ways so i began to consciously uh practicing so that it would not be there so strongly and maybe that meant watching less media not completely checking out of news but just not being willing to have the media repeat something you know 50 times it wasn't enough to see the buildings falling once you had to see them you know fall at least 50 times it, you know, it's just not good for you it's just not helpful so i did not wish to live in fear and i thought the people that come to spirit rock also need to have an understanding that we can't allow what is going on externally to erode our sense of well-being now this doesn't mean ignoring the situations in the world there's certainly plenty of situations that are difficult that cause suffering but rather not to indulge in that suffering not to get lost in the sensationalizing of that suffering to to the degree that it's it's having an effect on your consciousness so this is a helpful teaching to live in joy even among those who hate you know because it it speaks of this capacity we all have inside of us to cultivate sources of well-being and compassion that are independent of what is going on around us there is a tibetan lama that maybe some of you have heard of or know um he lives in um prescott arizona part of the year which is how i came to meet him his name is garchen rimpache he's a man about my age i would say maybe a little bit younger and i went to see him several summers ago and he told a story having been in tibet when the chinese invaded and he was a fairly young man at that time he was a lama and he was th- captured and thrown in prison where he remained for i think almost 20 years he was in a chinese prison in tibet tortured regularly very harsh conditions and he said how fortunate it was for him that he was there with some very good friends of his they were all in there together so they helped each other 
survive. And one way they did that was uh, they had one day a week where they they weren't being interrogated or uh, tortured. They would have like a day off from torture. Sounds kind of strange. But anyway... Um, they on that day they would all meet in the courtyard and they would practice together. They would remember their Buddhist practices and they would do them together and they would talk among e- to each other and they would encourage each other and help each other. And sometimes he said they would just laugh and laugh and laugh. And that drove the guards crazy. The guards would come out and hear them laughing and shout at them and say, what's wrong with you? Don't you know you are in prison? You shouldn't be laughing. You must be insane. Because, you know, they were supposed to be fearful and cowed by what was going on. But that sustained them a great deal. So when Garchin finally was allowed to leave this prison, he bore no ill will, he said to his captors. Can you imagine? By then, he had practiced compassion. He had practiced cultivating well-being in himself to the point where he could be there and not feel like a victim. I was interested to hear today that uh, President Obama is in South Africa visiting, and they were talking about what it's very interesting timing that he's he's visiting South Africa right now because Nelson Mandela has been in the hospital in critical condition and it's not known, you know, whether he will live or die. And so they, they were speculating as to whether Obama would and Mandela would be able to meet. They both had great admiration for each other and they only met once before briefly in Washington So we don't know if they will meet. But one thing that Obama is going to do while he is in South Africa is visit Robben Island, which is an island outside of Cape Town where Mandela was in prison for almost 20 years, I think. And I happened to visit South Africa and went to Robben Island and uh, was they, they do a tour the former inmates of Robben Island do the tour. They show you all that went on. And so I got to see where Mandela lived, you know, a small, much about maybe a third the size of your room, you know, a, a really small area. But he also found a way to be there in prison that was supportive of his well-being, of his compassion. So when he left prison... Very similarly, he walked out with his guard. They, they became fast friends over those years. Hard to imagine. But born of this understanding of inner work, this born of this understanding of the kinds of practices that will support us even in the midst of d- difficulty. So I want to talk about um, four kinds of happiness, as I said. It's getting a little dark in here. (laughs) Hey. 
And uh, so that when you leave here and go back to your lives tomorrow, you will have this understanding to take with you. The first kind of happiness the Buddha talked about is the happiness of sense pleasures. Pleasant sights, pleasant sounds, pleasant tastes, pleasant thoughts. And as I said at the beginning, I'm sure you have noticed that your sensory experience has become more vivid, more sensitive, more open since you have been here. And it will remain so for some days when you leave here. You may go back into the world and that first hit of, I don't know, whatever your favorite thing is that you've been missing, the chocolate cake or the cup of coffee or the cafe latte or whatever it is that you might be looking forward to, will be so vividly experienced because your sense doors are so open right now. And what happens with this uh, reduction in sensory stimulation, not being exposed to so much distraction or uh, media or, you know, news from your friends about this, that, and the other thing, is that um, with the refinement of your sense doors, it also doesn't take so much to feel satisfied. You might have noticed that, that one beautiful sip of cold water on a hot day may seem very beautiful to you in a way that uh, before you would not have noticed. So part of the way the practice works is Actually, when we wake up to this uh, delicacy of our sense perceptions, we, we are also waking up to the fact that we don't need so much sensory stimulation. There was a, a, a Zen monk and poet, Ryokan, who was a very simple monk in Japan, and he wrote beautiful poetry. He literally lived with a robe and a bowl and a few pieces of paper where he wrote his poems. He went begging every day. He, his needs were completely simple. And he wrote this poem called, You Do Not Need Many Things. My house is buried in the deepest recess of the forest. Every year... Ivy vines grow longer than the year before. Undisturbed by the affairs of the world, I live at ease. Woodmen singing rarely reaching me through the trees. While the sun stays in the sky, I mend my torn clothes, and facing the moon, I read holy texts aloud to myself. Let me drop a word of advice for you seekers. To enjoy life's immensity, you do not need many things. He was a happy guy. He knew what he needed and what life was offering him that was very satisfying. So what have you noticed here in the last few days which has given you delight, joy, well-being, Let's hear what have you been experiencing as delightful. Laurel. Yes. It was so 
you saw somebody else bite into a plum, and it was, and it was gorgeous. The plum was just amazing. Thank you. What else? Yes. Christmas tree grove, yes, something you might not have noticed so much before. Yes? When I took a walk, the smells of eucalyptus and lavender. The smells of eucalyptus and lavender, yes. Yes, Della. Yes, of saving a moth from drowning, saving ants several times. Wow, you're going to be popular with these bugs. Yes. The last night what? Oh, the vichyssoise. Oh, lovely. Anyone else? Yeah, Janet. Whoa, shade. Yes, how lovely. Yes. How wonderful. How wonderful. Janet. Oh. Oh, probably, yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. They were collaborating. Uh-huh. Yeah. Isn't it wonderful? The deer haven't been around so much this week. I don't know why, but sometimes there's lots of deer wandering in fawns with them. Oh, they're in the parking lot. Well, they're... If you have seen them, you see that they're not afraid of, of you, uh, you humans wandering around. They've gotten quite used to people, you know, being silent and <laughs> wandering around. And you can have darshan at times with a deer, you know, because they'll just look at you. And they don't mind you just looking back. And you can just stand there for a long time, <laughs> you know, gazing. Okay, one more. Wendy. You saw a fawn? Yes. Yes. Playing. Yes. Yeah, it's fabulous. So even these simple things that ordinarily in your busy lives wouldn't stand out begin to resonate. So we're told by the uh, neuroscientists that it's important to allow uh, ourselves to receive such moments, even though they're small. Because our brains are wired for vigilance and kind of anxiety and being on guard. And to take in what Rick Hansen calls taking in the good requires us to stop and really savor those moments where we feel this connection with the life around us. Here's a poem by Billy Collins called Aimless Love, where he's experiencing some of this. 
This morning, as I walked along the lake shore, I fell in love with a wren, and later in the day with a mouse the cat had dropped under the dining room table. In the shadows of an autumn evening, I fell for a seamstress still at her machine in the tailor's window, and later for a bowl of broth, steam rising like smoke from a naval battle. This is the best kind of love, I thought, without recompense, without gifts or unkind words, without suspicion or silence on the telephone, no lust, no slam of the door, no waiting, no rancor, just a twinge every now and then for the wren who had built her nest on a low branch overhanging the water, and for the dead mouse still dressed in its light brown suit. After I carried the mouse by the tail to a pile of leaves in the woods, I found myself standing at the bathroom sink, gazing down affectionately at the soap, so patient and soluble, so at home in its pale green soap dish. I could feel myself falling again as I felt its turning in my wet hands and caught the scent of lavender and stone. I think one of the challenges in our culture now is this koan about stuff. We all have a lot of stuff, probably too much stuff. The koan, I think, is the koan, when is enough enough? When do we have enough? When have we done enough? When is who we are enough? In our culture, the answer is usually, you can't have enough. You need more. Billy uh, Holiday, the singer, wrote a, a song called, Everyone Wants to Go to Heaven, But No One Wants to Die. In the same way, we could say, Everyone wants happiness, but no one wants to let go. And yet what we're discovering in practice is that it is the very letting go that allows this sense of well-being and joy and happiness to flourish. So that is the first kind of happiness the Buddha spoke about. The second kind is the happiness of practicing loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity, the four Brahma-viharas which these dorm buildings are named after. And you have experienced a taste of loving-kindness practice, a little taste perhaps of compassion practice. We haven't had time to talk very much about the practice of mudita or cultivating joy in the happiness of others or the practice of equanimity, that supreme balance of mind that sees things quite clearly and cares but not too much. So these beautiful qualities of heart and mind are, again, not dependent on outer conditions, but dependent on our giving these qualities attention and repetition and practicing how to be with them. Just as the other day in the metta, you, you practice with a neutral person, and some of you discovered that 
the neutral person doesn't remain neutral when you are sending them loving kindness. So we see the impact of these. Many years ago, on my one of my first very long retreats back in Massachusetts, um, I had an experience that uh, when Mark was speaking last night about that sense of a kind presence that developed in him over the time, the months when he was having such a struggle with his anxiety. I thought of a time when um, I was in practice and I spent a lot of time outdoors. So I was having many of the kinds of experiences you just mentioned, feeling this love of nature and how it brought out something in me that reminded me of being a child again and the kind of delight in just seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, you know, that just delight of being in touch with with nature. And then we were chanting a chant uh, at least once a day that was, uh, had a line in it that was... Um, through the goodness that arises from my practice, may awakening spontaneously arise in my stream of being. So because we chanted this every day, it kind of got into my cells. And after some time, I began to feel for the first time ever in my whole life, maybe since I was like three years old or something, I actually felt this sense of goodness in myself. And it was, it was a lovely feeling, very welcome feeling, but it didn't exactly fit with my self-image of myself. It didn't fit with the ideas that I had gotten about who I was. And particularly some of the painful ideas I had about myself of not being worthy, not being good enough, um, being a bit of a troublemaker. And so this sense of goodness was just like, wow, that was a healing of some of those other images of myself because I felt the truth of it. I felt this goodness that is not about being good or having to do something to earn your sense of goodness, but just the fact of it. And that just in the way that I could look at a tree and feel its goodness, or look at a anything, a stone, a mountain, a cloud, and feel its goodness, I could also locate that feeling inside of myself. So we could say, through the kindness that arises from my practice, or through the courage that arises from my practice, or we could say, through the faith that arises from my practice, because practice itself awakens wholesome qualities. When we let go, when we stop grasping, when we stop resisting, wholesome qualities that are are an inherent part of our being begin to be felt. That just happens. You don't have a choice. So this is a big learning in practice that these wholesome qualities are waiting for the conditions in which to show themselves. 
The third kind of happiness the Buddha talked about is the happiness of concentration, the happiness of a mind that is settled, stable, unified, collected, focused. And we haven't emphasized it so terribly much on this retreat, but perhaps you will sit a concentration retreat sometime, or you will come to another retreat where there's a little more emphasis on just being with the breath. And when we collect the mind in that way and we settle it and stabilize it, what's not present? What is not present when we do that are the hindrances. There's no restlessness, there's no grasping, there's no aversion, there's no doubt. All of those are gone. And that's why it is it makes us feel very happy. There's a sense of well-being connected with concentration. Now, you can find this application in your lives as well. I think sometimes people uh, like to work so much because it fosters some degree of concentration. Even, I have to say, being online actually fosters a certain amount of concentration because when we're online, we're doing this, that, and the other, there's a certain amount of collectedness. Now, this is not to encourage you to just, you know, use that as your concentration practice. But, um, But it does have that impact. Or if you are an artist, or if there's an activity that you love doing, like gardening or cooking or anything, anytime you are collecting your attention and focusing it, you will feel a sense of natural sense of well-being and happiness that arises out of that activity. So the Buddha practiced and discovered that these are, these are kinds of happiness, but then he also felt, and this was his genius, that as wonderful as they are, any of these practices, they are not liberating he saw that this was not the final goal. And so he took matters into his own hands because there was no teacher who could guide him at this point. He he felt like he had to find what he was looking for on his own. So he went off and discovered on his own the ultimate happiness, which is the happiness of liberating insight. This is called insight meditation. The focus on... Uh, insight as the the thing that frees us from the prison of our craving and our aversion and our ignorance. So this focus on the freedom that comes from contact with the truth. It is the truth that liberates. The Buddha, again from the Dhammapada said, the taste of truth is the sweetest taste. The joy of truth is the greatest joy. So what kind of truth was he particularly pointing to? We could say that insights happen on many different levels. We may have insights when we're sitting into all kinds of life issues, psychological issues or uh, issues about what to do about something, 
relational issues, health issues. But the classical aim of insight in mindfulness practice is insight into what are called the three characteristics of reality. What are they? The truth of change, that we live in in a sea of ceaseless change. The truth of suffering, of uh, the suffering of holding on, of clinging, of trying to make things not change or be the way we want them to be. And the truth of no self. These are called the three characteristics. That Actually, this is reality, but we are not open to seeing that reality. So, when we are practicing, we are opening ourselves to the possibility that we will come in contact with one or more of these truths. But they are not under our control. We can't say, okay, I've heard about this liberating insight, now I'm ready, you know, bring it on, or gee, I think I'll have my liberating insight at the next sitting and then I can go home early. It's not like that. They're not under our control. But the the conditions of the retreat are created purposefully so that you have the maximum possibility of bumping into one of these insights, one or more of these insights. Like there's a teacher named uh, Suryadas who said, uh, enlightenment is an accident and retreats make you more accident prone. (laughs) And that's kind of what we're up to here. We've created conditions that hopefully some people will uh, be able to find uh, this this way of understanding. So what is the effect on us of having an insight? They are described in many different ways. I would like to share with you six different things that an insight is likely to foster in you. One, we experience a great freeing of our energy. If we have been caught in a particular mind state or story, we are free from it. And our energy is, a sense, there's a greater sense of aliveness and immediacy. We are more easily present, not so lost. There's more space in our mind, less clinging. There's less identification with our thinking. We see that thinking about things is not necessarily freeing. It might be very useful for other things, but it doesn't free us. There is also a sense of great confidence when you have an insight. There's a sense of confidence in what you have understood. No one can talk you out of it. If you have a deep insight into impermanence and your friend comes along and says, no, 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 that's ridiculous. Things don't change. You must be mistaken. You, you, you know that that's not true. You have confidence in what it is you have seen. 
An insight can occur suddenly or it can occur very gradually and sneakily over a period of time. Suzuki Roshi gave this analogy. He said that awakening is like walking in the fog, not necessarily feeling the dampness while you're outside, but when you come indoors, you realize your coat is soaked through. So you might go home after this retreat thinking, well, that was okay, not much happened to me. And then in the middle of your week, you may have a profound insight. So insights don't always happen when we think, you know, they should. Like when you're sitting in stillness in the hall. No, they can come anytime, anyway. Here are some metaphors uh, which have been used to describe the effect of an insight. Like finding an oasis in the desert, as if one had been traveling for 1,000 miles and finally found a place to rest. Like taking a healing medicine and feeling well again. Like cool moonlight, which soothes and pacifies the restless, tormented mind. Like a flash of lightning in a dark and stormy sky. Or like the warmth of the sun breaking through the clouds. It shifts our perception. It it opens our minds to another view of what is true and real. The Indian teacher Nisargadatta pointed to this kind of insight when a student asked him, what is the difference between happiness and pleasure? He said, pleasure depends on things. Happiness does not. Student said, then why are we not always happy? He said, said, as long as we believe that we need things to make us happy, we shall also believe that in their, absent, in their absence we must be miserable. Real happiness is best expressed negatively as, there is nothing wrong with me. I have nothing to worry about. It is the experience of being empty, uncluttered by memories and expectations. It is like the happiness of open spaces, of being young, of having all the time and energy for doing things, for discovery, for adventure. Your true home is in nothingness, emptiness of all content. True happiness has no cause, and what has no cause is immovable. So these are the four kinds of happiness that we will bump into if we continue with this practice. The happiness of sense pleasure, of our sense of immediacy and aliveness of our being. The happiness of the uh, loving kindness and the other Brahma Viharas of cultivating wholesome qualities of heart. 
the happiness of concentration, a mind that is collected, focused, steady, present. And finally, the happiness of seeing deeply into the truth of things, just the way things are, not as we fear them to be, not as we want them to be, but as they are. So let's sit together for a moment. You do not need many things in order to be happy. I'm aware of saying. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.